0: Angered is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Michael Ortner, a philanthropist, a CEO, a homeschooling dad of six, and an investor in CLT. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Registration is open for the August 21st CLT. The CLT is a remotely proctored alternative to the SAT and ACT. You can take the CLT from anywhere in the world and from the comfort of your own home. And for students applying to Belmont Abbey College, you can take the August 21st CLT for free. To learn more, visit our website at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation.
1: Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, I'm your host, Jeremy Tate. Uh, we're here with co host and producer Aruba Asim. Uh, and today, I'm always excited about our guests, but I'm extra excited today with uh, the one and only Michael Ordner. Uh, Michael uh, formerly founded a company called Captera, a uh, very successful business to uh, business company. He has been a philanthropist, uh, a CEO coach to me, uh, a mentor. Uh, an investor, an entrepreneur, and has his hands in many different initiatives. Michael, thanks so much for being on the program.
2: Hey Jeremy, Hey Aruba, thanks for having me.
1: So Michael, start us off with kind of your early days with with education. What kind of schools did you go to growing up and did you did you love learning
2: uh, at an early age? Um, I went to uh, uh, I was a typical public school all the way uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. I'm from uh, Malvern, Pennsylvania, small town, 20 miles west of Philly. Um, Yeah. Very, very typical. I was a pretty hard worker. Um, I would say looking back uh, first and second grade, I attended uh, a school that was sort of an independent public school, which doesn't, these types of schools don't really exist anymore. That it didn't, I don't think it reported into the County school board. And uh, I think their teachers there had a lot more freedom. It was a very small school, and uh, I remember enjoying that experience. Um, but then, as as school went on, I I thought I was enjoying it. Overall, I overall I enjoyed school. I was a big fan and advocate of public school through college. I was always defensive of public school uh, through college. And It probably wasn't until later that I my eye my my eyes were open to um, to what it could have been. Um, I, I look back on it now as sort of a wonder killing experience, uh, and and so that and which has guided so much of the things that my wife and I have gotten involved with.
1: Wow, well, you you must have done well though academically. You went on to do your undergrad at Georgetown. How was that experience?
2: Um. I really liked Georgetown a lot. I had, again, sort of in the moment, I enjoyed my experience there. I had some good professors, just like in kindergarten through 12th, I had some great teachers. Um, I looked back, but again, it was a few years, probably a few years after Georgetown where I started to look back and started to recognize how much, again, how much better it could have been but Georgetown gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, I met some people there that had a huge influence on the rest of my life. And generally speaking, I look back on it pretty pretty favorably. Um, so, yeah, overall, pretty good.
1: Uh, and we'd love to hear the story uh, of launching Capterra. I, I first became familiar with your name a few years ago and started to ask some of my friends in the software world, have you heard of Michael Ortner? And the response was always, who hasn't heard of Michael Ortner? Like, yeah. <laughs> of course.
2: Um,
1: so tell us about Captera launching. Uh, what was that like and and how did you become a successful business?
2: Um, sure. So, you yeah, know, wh- where to start in the story? You know, I, so I, I had just moved down. So I'm from the Pennsylvania area. I moved, uh, I was living up there and I moved back down to the DC area to work for another, for a tech company. Uh, this is back in 1999. I was 25 years old. And it was there at the tech company that I saw the need for a service like Captera, the sort of online marketplace for the business software industry, and decided to give it a go. And certainly being at a tech company, I remember doing a trip out to Silicon Valley and sort of immersing myself in tech. It's such an entrepreneurial industry that, that was a. it was certainly a pivotal experience for me to... to Finally, decide to once I had an idea to, to make a go of it. Um, but honestly, I look, when I look backward a little bit more, this, the, the seeds were planted for me probably in the few years leading up to that, really in the year leading up to that. Um, I, uh, if you had asked me when I finished Georgetown, would I ever be an entrepreneur or start a company Georgetown, at least back in 95, when I graduated, it was not a particularly entrepreneurial school. I think it's gotten more entrepreneurial since then, but back then it it wasn't. Everyone went into consulting or banking, or at least everyone uh, who was into the into the business world in business school. And um, never even crossed my mind. I, I meet lots of other entrepreneurs nowadays, and over the last twenty years, that, uh, that have shared stories with me of oh. You know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was ten years old, and you know, opened up the lemonade stand or whatever entrepreneurial activity they were doing when they were a kid or a teenager. And that was not me. Um, I did have a paper route, but I wouldn't call that entrepreneurial. Um, I was your typical kid who would get home from school and go run around in the woods and play sports. Um, and you know, I worked hard. I did my homework, but I was not starting businesses at the age of ten or fifteen years old. Um, and, I, and certainly when I graduated from Georgetown, I was 21, 22 years old, I wasn't even thinking about it. Um, but I would say a couple things uh, in the year leading up to it uh, opened my mind to it. So, so first of all, and, and they've happened at the same time. So I got bored, I was working for J.P. Morgan. Um, I, my first job was Price Waterhouse, their consulting group. I got tired of the travel, went to go work for J.P. Morgan. And I was in their tech back office and bored. Um, and I was working a, just a straight eight-hour day. And so I had a lot of free time. And that's when I started getting into reading and stuff. Um, I started doing a lot more reading than I had ever done prior to that. And, but after a year and a half there, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something different. And I decided to take a sabbatical So I did a two month sabbatical and I went to Africa and did volunteer work and taking, I was in a bit of a rut. So I was 24, 24, 25 years old when I went to go do this. Um, And it was good for me to get, to sort of get off of the, um, you know, the the sort of work treadmill, if you will, and get off autopilot and go do something different. and going to Kenya for two months to do volunteer work was, was just what the doctor ordered. It was, it was perfect for me. So I think part of it was just getting away from everything, started to open my mind up to what do I want to do with the rest of my life? What do I want to do for the next few years? Um, so that was one. And then the other thing, which ties into some of our later conversation, I'm sure, is there was a book that I was reading at that time that is frowned upon by most people in our circles, um i know but i'm not ashamed uh it's atlas shrugged by ayn rand yeah um so great a a great so i was 25 when i was reading it and i would say 25 is a great age to read that book so it is it is a uh, a great book a great but flawed book by a great but flawed mind um so most people can't stand Ayn Rand, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, because she, she is great at alienating just about everyone, except your diehard sort of atheist libertarians, if you will. Um, but what's, so, and it is an imperfect piece of literature. And I didn't realize it, you know, and I've learned this over time as I've read, gotten into more of the classics, so you can see some of the flaws of, of Shrugged. But Shrugged, the, 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 the great thing, Two great things about *The Shrug* are: I think every American should read it. It it is a it is the best fictional defense of of um, of a free market that yeah. that I've ever read. I, I can't even think of what would be in the same league as that. Um, and then the other thing it does is it really celebrates entrepreneurs. And uh, I don't. Um, I didn't finish the book and think, okay, I'm going to go start a company. But I think taking time away and having, for whatever reason, that was the book. I had probably four or five different friends tell me I had to read that book, and I finally caved and I read it when I was there. So I think doing, I think reading that book and being away, it can it put me in a in a frame of mind um, where I would be open if I ever did get an idea for a company, like a real problem that needed to be solved. That instead of uh not doing anything about it that I, I I could actually do something about it. Um so I think uh so I I finished that book and I returned, moved right down to DC. This is February, March of uh of nineteen ninety nine. I was working at this tech company, Digex for eight months and I got this idea probably five months into it um and saw a huge need for uh you know uh people getting more help in finding and evaluating uh, the right software for their business and that sort of thing. So th- that, that uh, sort of a long, uh, sh- maybe a short story long in terms of wh- uh, my startup experience right up to launching the company. And of course, after that, it was uh, starting a company is, well, it, was, it was a much harder, uh, it was a way bigger challenge than I ever imagined that it could be. Especially, I did this in '99, and back in '99, like everyone was starting. It felt like everyone was starting something. Hmm. Um, it was a it was a very entrepreneur friendly time period. Money was easy. Everything seemed easy. Um, and then six months after, five months after I started, it, everything started to crash down with the, the sort of dot com bust of 2000 to 2003 or, or so. Yeah. So, but anyway, super fun. <laughs> and rewarding experience early on, for sure.
0: So, Michael, aside from your business degree, you also have a philosophy degree from University of London. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the classical tradition, what that did for your work, and really how it, you know, changed your perspective on business and life in general.
2: Sure. So I I came... I was an unlikely person to come to the classical tradition. I knew nothing about it uh, Hmm. until my mid 20s. And I would say I came at it from in three different ways. The first way was I read my way into it to a degree. So I mentioned this a little bit before Um, when I uh, 20, the age of 24, when I took on the job with my second job out of college with JP Morgan, I was working very easy hours and I found myself, for the first time in a while with a good amount of free time. And uh I I did and I treasured it. I did a lot with it. I mean, I did everything from playing tons of football on a weekend with my high school buddies to some I took Taekwondo classes and um but of all the things I did with my free time, it was definitely I just you know quadrupled down on my reading time. I started reading everything. That I could get my hands on, good books and bad books. uh, In retrospect, Um, I read a lot of terrible stuff, but I also read some really good stuff. And um, I'd already mentioned uh, Atlas Shrugged was one of the books that I had read. Uh, Other, I started getting into. um, I read everything about science, religion, philosophy, everything. So it's it's almost like I was regaining my sense of wonder that had been beaten down all those years. Hmm. And uh, so one of the I eventually stumbled into a book by Peter Kreef called The Summa of the Summa. So I wasn't ready to read the, the real Summa by Aquinas, uh, and I knew that. So why not start with the abridged version or whatever by Kreef? And in the intro, I barely made it beyond the introduction, and he basically said, hey, if you're going to study Aquinas, you really need to study Aristotle. Mm-hmm. i like, okay. Uh, So, you know, you start picking up Aristotle, um, and you quickly realize that, okay, if you're going to really study, you shouldn't start with Aristotle either, either. You should start with his teacher, Plato. Uh, And Plato is a way easier place to start than Aristotle, uh, thankfully, and a much more engaging place to start. Aristotle is, uh, I mean, Nicomachean Ethics is amazing, but it... I think there are other books you need to read before you get really can get into that and value that. So I ended up reading Plato's Apology, and that was my introduction really to, you know, obviously Socrates and Plato and ancient Greek philosophy. And I fell in love with it. Uh, the Apology was a game changer for me. It changed my life. Um, and, and a big part of that was just witnessing the, the incredible humility of Socrates in that story. And that, and that combined with other books of which Atlas Shrugged included, because Ayn Rand, I would say she was a philosopher first and a, and a writer second. Um, that made me hungry for philosophy. So that's what launched me into eventually getting a philosophy degree on the side while I was still getting Keptera off the ground. Um, but that's really what So I sort of read my way into the classics at the beginning and I had a, and I, and it was the ancient Greeks were definitely my favorite. Um, so that was the beginning later on when my, uh, my wife and I were having kids and she was starting to, we knew at that point we wanted to try homeschooling and she was researching curriculums, uh, that were the different curriculums that were out there. And a lot of them had a classical bent to them. And when she was showing them to me, and I was reading through them, I was like, "Oh my gosh, like this is what I was missing. like i'm I'm getting many years later what what I would want my kids to be getting right out of the gate. And a lot of these these beautiful classical uh, homeschool curriculums uh, are, you know capture the very beginning of what, you know, you know focused on virtue and and learning through experience in nature and memorizing poetry and doing all these beautiful things that I had little to no experience doing when I was in elementary school. Um, so learning. So, and then when you read about these curriculums, you read the authors of these curriculums and books they recommend. So that was sort of my sort of the second prong of the attack of classical on me was, was diving into these, these homeschooling curriculums. And then the final, the final thing was, um, uh, later in my late 30s, I I was I went to a, I was actually back at Georgetown for a lecture. Uh, there is a professor at Georgetown named Patrick Deneen. Uh, he had come from Princeton, came to Georgetown, started a group called the Tocqueville Forum, which was helping guide students to a, to a to help them receive a more classical liberal arts education at Georgetown. It didn't exist when I was there. I wish it would have. Um, but Patrick was doing a lot of great things at Georgetown and I was attending a lecture of his. And when I walked in the lecture room, he was there talking with another gentleman and he introduced me to Andrew Zordeman, who was the head of school at Trinity school at Meadowview uh, here in Falls Church, Virginia. And uh, this school has, it had a great reputation. I had heard about it from numerous people and probably in the prior year leading up to meeting Andrew and heard amazing things about it. And by luck, we were living, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes from the school. And so I met him, Andrew and I talked briefly. And then the following, uh, like the next couple of, days, a couple of days later, I found him on LinkedIn. I reached out to him and said, hey, um, we're doing a internship program this summer. And I hear you have great students. If you have any high school kids that are interested in a summer internship at a tech company, feel free to send them my way. He responded right away week or two later, I get emails from these two kids, ages 15 and 18, two brothers, and they were interested. And, uh, to make a long story, we had, we had hired six other interns that summer that were all from local top colleges in their early twenties that all had tech or business experience. So my intern director didn't really want to take on two high schoolers, but I kind of twisted his arm a little bit and he did. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks into the summer, I get a late night email from him saying, well, where in the world did you find these two guys? And uh, why is everything OK? And he just went on and on about how amazing they were in so many different ways. So from then on, I hired for the next five, six years uh, until I pretty much sold Capterra and left it. All of our interns pretty much we hired were these students from Trinity um, who were getting a far better education than, frankly, certainly than I ever received through high school and college. And that honestly, what most of us, most, almost anyone I've ever met has received through, through high school and college, they were better educated than most college students. So super impressive, everything from their humility to their work ethic, uh, the the questions they asked their analytical thinking, um, the writing skills, everything, they're the real package. So all these life experiences all kept pushing me in this direction of, really appreciating uh, the value of um, of classics, classic mm-hmm. literature in particular um, and, and, and a respect for the classical liberal tradition.
1: So, so Michael, you mentioned our mutual friend, Andrew Zorneman, uh, and you you co-founded together Cana Academy, which has become a really popular resource for teachers across the country at classical schools. Uh, tell us about kind of the origins of Kana Academy and, and what kind of work you're doing now.
2: Uh, sure. Um, definitely have my uh I'm involved with a whole number of things, but Kana Academy is one of the very first things. It's one of the biggest things that I've been working on, um, with Andrew Ornament leading the way over the last four or five years. Um, so the, the idea behind Kana, and so uh, you know, part of the challenge for Kana Academy was here was here's the head of school of the school that we want our kids to eventually go to. So I, I, I wasn't pining to sort of tear him away from that role, but he's the one who really started looking. He wanted to, you know, in the in his final sort of whatever ten or twenty years, hopefully as many as possible, of his career, he wanted to, you know, go above and beyond the impact he could have as a as a head of school, and you know, impact as many schools and teachers and students as he possibly could. So he and I were batted around ideas for. Uh, you know, probably a number of months, maybe a year. And uh, so the the mission, we landed on this mission for Cana Academy. Um, And the the whole idea is there are so many schools, there's a growing classical movement among schools. It's mostly private schools. It's a lot of uh, private Christian schools, some Catholic schools, but it also includes some charter schools. And I hope One day, it can include all schools, including the traditional public schools that I went to. Um, But there is a growing movement of, of schools adopting beautiful missions that go above and beyond what has been the trend for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which has been, as you well know, Jeremy, it's all about college and career readiness. And that to me is a really low bar, and we can do so much better in terms of what a vision for a school should be in terms of helping foster uh, a child's sense of wonder, helping them grow in intellectual virtues, all the virtues, um, growing in wisdom, uh, and, and using the classics as a great tool in that process. So what Kane Academy does is we help um, we do a number of things. The, mo- the most important thing is we help train teachers to run great seminars, uh, particularly at the high school, some at the middle school level. Um, that's where you can start really getting into seminars. It's um, we see in the classical movement a lot of a lot of a lot of schools are trying to get you know do serious seminars with like elementary school kids, and I think you can get carried away with that. Um, But I'm a big fan of the seminar method as opposed to the lecture method. Um, Most teachers that most most of us experienced in high school was lecture method, maybe interactive lectures. Maybe we're asking students questions sometimes. But there is a much more beautiful method for teaching certainly great literature, but even having history discussions and all all sorts of other discussion. And it's the seminar method. So it's, you know, Everyone's in a circle or square or rectangle facing each other as opposed to everyone just facing the teacher. So everyone's facing each other and having a very much a guided discussion where about typically about a, a classic text where the teacher is often introducing it with a question and making sure that the right questions are being asked throughout the discussion that students can walk away with the right insights. And this form of a classroom experience is, it, it's so much more engaging. And you, and from my experience, I've now experienced lots of seminars from lots of different teachers. You get, I always walk in, for if it's a well-run seminar, I'm going to walk out of that seminar with, you know, 3X, 5X, acts, acts, more of an understanding of the book than I did walking into it. Um so Kana Academy is all about using the great experience of Andrew and his his team to, uh, all the decades of experience they have of teaching seminars and teaching teachers how to run great seminars mm-hmm. um and helping the future teachers uh, uh, pass that along to their passing it along to them so they can have these experiences with their students. Um, and, and and that includes, so in addition to teaching teachers, we're also the, they've written dozens of teaching guides, basically some uh, teaching guides to guide a teacher of how to run a great seminar for that specific work. Um, so they've written guides for all sorts of classic texts. Hmm. Um, and so uh, so they can so we're, we can give these to teachers. And they can use these uh, as a resource along the way as they're making sure they're asking the right questions and whatnot to all their students as they're going about it. So, and what we've found is um, we're getting the types of schools that are using us. It's kind of all over the place. There are some schools that want to flip, like they have a failing model where they're losing students or their students seem unengaged and they now have a a new leadership and they want to flip. And so for some of those schools we're actually helping them with their curriculum and other things right starting from scratch and helping them you know, perform that flip. Um, so we have some stu- some schools that are doing that. We have other schools that are have been doing classical for 5, 10, 15 years and doing it pretty well but are all you know if, if you have a classical mindset, you have a growth mindset and you're always looking to improve um so we're working with their teachers to improve how they run seminars
1: that's great um
2: and then we also get we're getting some teachers from other schools that haven't bought into a classical mindset yet but but a teacher sees what we're doing and sees the power of a seminar and they want to go do it and invest in themselves and they learn how to do this and they'll do it as part of a typical you know they might go and there might be a teacher at a, at a Catholic school, a parochial school where the rest of the school is still doing boring lectures and non-classical texts. But this teacher may have a background in classic texts and they realize the the beauty and truth and goodness that are in these texts and want to do it, but they know that they don't know how to run seminars too well yet. So they're coming to us. So anyway, so it's, it's been a really, um, been, it's been a really fun ride super fulfilling to know that every every teacher that we're reaching is on is now they're reaching dozens and eventually hundreds of their own students the hmm. so hoping i mean so i mean jeremy so much of what we do in life is is a response to what went wrong for us right so uh, uh, yeah so much it's so much of what we're trying to do
1: that's great. It is such important work, Michael, that you're doing uh, at Can Academy. And if you're listening to this, uh, one of our early anchor podcasts we did with Andrew Warman, one of the most popular anchor podcasts actually we have in terms of downloads. Um, so that's a great place to learn more about Can Academy. Michael, where where can they go to, to learn more? Is, is the website dot org.
2: O-R-G. You got it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.